Um, we're in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. If you're not there, get there. Verse 18. Verse 18 says this. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We're in the city of Thyatira this week, and Thyatira is a lot like the region. It's a blue-collar city. It's a working man's city. It's a union town, except the thing wasn't steel. It was bronze. There was a bit of a local guild of bronze workers here in Thyatira. They formed a little bit of a union. They prided themselves in making bronze. Now, it's interesting that Jesus identifies himself as the one whose feet are burnished with bronze. But it wasn't just bronze in this city. The people here worked with leather, wool, linen, pottery, various garments were made in Thyatira. You'll remember Lydia from Acts 16, right? She was part of the uh, church at Philippi. She was a seller of what? Purple. Where was she from? Thyatira. Okay. This is a bit of a commercial center here. A lot of manufacturing going on in this city, right? A bit of a blue collar working, right? You get your hands dirty in Thyatira here. The city was small, very uninfluential, contrasted with Ephesus and Pergamum, right? Thyatira, very small, not like them cities at all. It's the least important of all the cities mentioned in Revelation, and yet it receives the longest letter from Jesus. And the reason is for that is because Jesus is not a respecter of persons or churches. And Jesus doesn't care if your church is 2,500 or 25. He loves you. He loves his church, right? I don't care if you're in the city, the suburbs, or the sticks. Jesus loves his church. And so he writes the longest letter to the church in the smallest and least important city. He loves his church around the world. Now, as usual in these letters, Jesus identifies himself and then starts with what's encouraging him, what's encouraging his heart. And he says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus is really encouraged by some stuff going on here in Thyatira. He's encouraged by the fruit that he sees. Look at some of the things he mentions here. Works, love, faith, service, patient endurance. And then he says that your latter works exceed your first, meaning this, you're growing, you're increasing, You're bearing more and more fruit the longer you're in existence as a church. Well done, Thyatira. Well done. This church is doing well in its works and in its fruit. Jesus now inserts the what? The but, right? Every letter. Well done, Thyatira. You're bearing good fruit. You're increasing. But, but, verse 20, I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Same problem in Thyatira, same as Pergamum. Similar issues going on here. Now, it's very likely that the self-proclaimed prophetess here in Thyatira, it's most likely that her name's not Jezebel. But she's acting a lot like Jezebel from the Old Testament. Quick Old Testament lesson for you here, okay? Jezebel, who's that? Jezebel was the foreign wife of King Ahab. King Ahab was over the northern tribe of Israel back in his day. And Ahab committed the cardinal king sin. The card, like the number one cardinal king sin. He married a woman that didn't worship God. He married a foreign woman, a pagan woman. And this Jezebel, right? 
eventually influence her husband and the entire kingdom to stray from worshiping God and to start participating in Baal worship. And Baal worship was much like what's being described here in Thyatira. Pagan idolatry, sexual immorality. And because of that, Jezebel is infamous, right? The name Jezebel is infamous. Now, I think Jezebel is a cool name. But along with Judas, right, you throw that on the list of names to never name your baby, right? We're not going to do that. We're not going to name my baby Jezebel. I don't care if it's got a Z or a J in it, right? I think all names with Zs are cool, super cool, right? But just like Judas is synonymous with betrayal, Jezebel is synonymous with seduction, corruption, paganism, and sexual immorality. And so this woman, whatever her real name is, she's a part of the church here in Thyatira. She's a part of the church. If she was here at Bethel Church, she would have been attending services out in the commons. She would have been in a small group. She would have been in a women's Bible study, maybe leading a women's Bible study, counseling with people. She would have been a presence. People would have known her, and she would have known others in the church as well. This Jezebel, quite possibly, is very attractive, very eloquent, and articulate. And she's claiming to be a prophetess. She's claiming to speak on behalf of God. She's claiming to speak the truth. Whatever she's bringing, she's saying, this is from God. This is consistent with who he is. And she has some prominence and influence here at the church. People are following her. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 mentions her children, right? Now, is that her biological children? No, that's a reference to her followers. Those who are going along with what Jezebel's preaching and teaching. They're the ones who are wholesale buying in to what she's pushing. They're going along with her in her sexual immorality and in her adultery. In fact, the text says this, they're being seduced. There's a bit of a deception going on here. That's her children. And we're we're even seeing that some of God's children, some of those who are truly in Christ are getting caught up in what Jezebel's teaching and practicing. Some are moving away from worshiping Jesus and they're starting to sin sexually. Seems as though in Thyatira, Jesus has followers, and so does Jezebel. That's what's going on here. Now, side note, are you picking up from these letters here in Revelation that how easy it is for any one of us to fall into a lifestyle of habitual sin? Are you picking up on this? We don't see the names of these people, right? Just groups of people being deceived, following their uh, sinful uh, impulses of their heart following false teachers, falling into traps of the culture, just straying from God. There are some in each and every one of these churches that are getting caught up in open rebellion. I hope none of us in here think that this will never be me. This will never be me. I would never be like one of these that are being named in this letter. I hope none of us are thinking that. All of us are prone to this. Now, why is Jezebel so popular? Why does she have a following? Why, is, why are people being seduced? Why are people following her? Well, it's because she's saying that you can trust Jesus, follow Jesus, and sleep around. You can have a relationship with God plus party at your local Caesar temple and join in in the orgies. That's why she's popular. You can worship Jesus plus binge on porn. Sounds good for someone who would want those things. I can have God, I can have all the benefits of Christ, his gospel, plus I can just live out all my sinful and sexual impulses. Sign me up. Absolutely, right? And you could see why she's popular. 
1 John 2.15 says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This woman was teaching that love of the world and love of the Father can coexist. The two can mingle. The two can mesh. Jesus calls her teaching later on in this text the deep things of Satan. Is your view of God, his gospel, and his grace one that allows you to love God and love your sin? Is that your view of God's grace? Is that your view of God's love? Does it allow you to claim all the benefits of being known by God and being loved by God plus love your sin? That's exactly what she was teaching here. Jezebel's view accommodated that. And her views and practices are gaining momentum in the church. This is serious for Thyatira. They're in a critical condition here. There needs to be clear communication to the whole church that this is wrong. This isn't right. She has a lot of influence here at this church. Someone needs to step up and say something. Someone needs to call her and her followers to repentance for their sake and also for the sake of the church. And it seems as though the church in Thyatira and its leaders have done that. Kind of. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You see that? Two points really, really quick on this. First, notice Jesus calls her to repentance. Right? Think about all we said last week about repentance. Jesus shows this woman grace. Jesus is contending with her by calling her to repentance. He gave her time. In love, Jesus contends with her to turn from that which is going to destroy her and all of her followers. Jesus reaches out to Jezebel. Worship me, Jezebel. Use your influence to lead people to worship me. Use your influence and your prominence to lead people in purity of lifestyle. He calls her to repentance, as we saw as an act of God's grace last week. The second is this. How is it that Jesus calls her to repentance? Like, I have a question there, right? How does Jesus do this? He calls her to repentance? I don't get that. Like, did Jesus write her letter prior to this letter? Like, did Jesus come and make a physical manifestation in front of Jezebel and call her to repentance? How did Jesus call her to repentance? Like, how did that happen? It seems that Jesus called her to repentance through his church here in Thyatira. He called her to repentance through the people and the believers at this church. It seems as though Thyatira has started the process of what we call church discipline with Jezebel. It's a bit of a mind-blowing thing for me to think that Jesus has so closely, get this, Jesus has so closely united himself to his church that when Thyatira called Jezebel to repentance, Jesus says it's as if he called her to repentance. I love that. Jesus is like, I'm united to my church. And as the church calls her to repentance, it's as if God himself, it's as if Jesus himself is calling her to repentance. Why? Because they're obeying God's word. They're obeying his word. The word of God is so that to disobey any words of scripture is to disobey God himself. That to obey any words of scripture is to obey God himself. And we see that this church is walking out Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, 15 to 18. So for those of us who are unfamiliar with this process of church discipline, here it is. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, if your brother has any sin, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won him. Awesome. That's the point of it. To win your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it's not a he said, she said kind of a thing. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat them as an unbeliever. Like they're not part of the community of Christ. So here we see four steps. One-on-one conversation. And this is where most church discipline starts and ends. A brother goes to another brother. A sister goes to a sister. They have a conversation. God's spirit's at work. Repentance is had. And a brother's one. A sister's one. Praise God. If not, grab one or two others. Someone who might know this person. Maybe someone who, who this person respects, who's, who's knowledgeable about the situation. Take them along. Go and contend. Contend with this brother. Contend with this sister. Why? Sin destroys. It kills. It robs. We don't want that in each other's lives. We want the joy of our salvation to be known and realized. And grab a couple other people. Go to them. That doesn't work. Three, get the whole church involved. Tell the whole church. So that everybody that's part of that community can be a part of contending with that person's sin so that they might be won over and to come and experience the joy of their salvation. And if they refuse to repent still, put them out. Put them out. Treat them like a Gentile. Treat them like someone who doesn't, hasn't experienced the grace of God. Put them out of the community so that they might experience the pain of not being welcome. So that they might repent and be one. That's the heart seems as though Thyatira has taken these first couple of steps with this false prophetess. Notice the heart of church discipline according to Jesus. Jesus says, if that person listens to you, you've gained or you've won your brother. That's the heart. I want to win you. I want to gain you back. Come back until walking in the freedom of the gospel. Don't walk in that sin. Don't walk in that darkness. The heart of church discipline isn't mean-spirited. It's a heart of grace and love for the one being contended with. Church discipline is where the church joins Jesus in his gracious contending with each of his children whenever we find ourselves straying from God and his gospel. Robert Chong, as a pastor of counseling at Sojourn Church in Louisville, he wrote a book called God Redeeming His Bride. It's a book, very practical book on church discipline. He defines church discipline in this way. Church discipline is God's ongoing redeeming work through his living word and people as they fight the fight of faith together to exalt Christ and protect the purity of his bride. It's an extension of God's grace. If we saw last week that repentance is an extension of God's grace, us practicing that certainly is. And I love this other paragraph that he has here. He kind of meets it out a little bit more here. Listen to what he says. Talking about church discipline. In what we commonly call church discipline, God uses his living word and people to confront our evil and unbelieving thoughts and desires that lead us to fall away from him as our living God. We don't want that. We want to follow God. God calls us to pursue, encourage, and warn one another in the midst of our sinful struggles in ways that reflect how he mercifully deals with us. The goal of such pursuit is for the wayward ones to repent of their sin, to turn back to Jesus experiencing his restoring love and seeing his comparable glory, even as they are progressively being transformed into the image of Christ. Such ongoing efforts exalt Christ, protect the purity of his church, as the bride of Christ participates in God's mission by faith and obedience, while serving as agents of his disciplining work, the church individually and collectively experiences and is changed by God's redeeming love. That's the heart of church discipline. It's an extension of the grace of God to his church. Church discipline is a kind of an official process that Jesus has called us to walk out 
when we see sin and unrepentance unfolding in each other's lives. Now get this. God contended with our sin and won at the cross. He contended with our sin and he won that victory at the cross. God continues to contend with us in our sin, in our unbelief, in our wayward desires, through relationships with other Christians as they lovingly challenge us, confront us, admonish us, and rebuke us. He contends with our sin at the cross and he continues to do so. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. But sometimes it needs to go beyond a one-on-one conversation. Sometimes God calls us to tell it to the church. And those days are sad. They're sad. But even on those sad days, we need to be reminded that God's grace is in the process. He loves that person enough to contend with them. I love you enough to not let you walk down this path. Friends, we need to get to a point in our discipleship where we see words in Scripture like rebuke, admonish, confront, confess, and practices like church discipline as an extension of God's grace. We need to get to a place where we value this and practice this. Do you value this? Do you want this in your life? We need to get to a point where it's not odds to have another believer who in love for the sake of my joy and the glory of God pulls me aside, gets up in my grill and calls me out. We need to value that. Because we value the joy of our salvation and we hate sin. And all the contending and all the admonishing and all the rebuking and all the sitting down over coffee with sweat on the forehead saying, man, I got something hard to talk to you about. I'm seeing this. That's God's grace. We need to value that. We all need this. If you have a friend like this, value that friendship above all others. If you don't have a friend like this, find one. If you have friendships that don't involve this kind of culture, help start it. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We need these kinds of friends. Friends that are willing to wound us for our joy. No one benefits when all you have around you is friends that just throw you kisses. And they're not speaking the truth to you. Nobody benefits. Now, I'm about to say something about the necessity of being in community with other Christians. I'm about to say something about the necessity of being in community with other Christians. And I don't want you to think that I'm plugging a church program. I don't want you to think that this is a sermon about small group, increased small group involvement. Okay? This is not a churchy thing. This is a Revelation 2 thing. This is a Bible thing. This is a discipleship thing. You cannot experience God's ongoing work of grace in your life while being detached from God's church. And I don't just mean, I don't just mean attendance on Sunday morning. It's included in that. Absolutely. The gathering's included in that. I'm talking about the scattering. When we scatter, we need to be involved in each other's lives. We cannot experience the work of ongoing grace in our lives while being detached. The church, the people of God, is the extension, the hands, the feet, the mouth of God's ongoing, redeeming work in our lives. And we need to value each other. Value that. Everything that God wants to do in your life runs right through the church, friend. Runs right through it. Runs right through here. The relationships here. We all desperately need to be in community with other Christians. It's both God's design and his desire. It's his design. He's created us to be like that. Small groups simply help facilitate that. They provide a context for that. 
It's an on-ramp for you to really experience that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, be, sign up for a small group. But it does say, let's do this. Small groups help do that. I plead with you to be considering, to be part of a group like this. To have friendships like this. To talk to a pastor around here afterwards. To take a step towards that. We need it. Now notice, this church began to walk her and maybe others through this process. But Jezebel and her followers, they're not repenting. They're not displaying the ear to hear, the humble heart to receive this. Jezebel and her followers are continuing in their sin and their unrepentance. And their unrepentance proves their unbelief. It proves their unbelief. Their unrepentance proves that they're not truly in Christ. Why? Because those who truly belong to Christ repent. That's what we saw last week in Pergamum. What's missing between a head that's theologically accurate and a life that's just living in open rebellion? They've fallen out of repentance. They've fallen out of that. It's a distinguishing mark of the true believer. Unrepentance proves you're unregenerate. You don't possess new life in Christ. Are you doing that? Are you walking in rhythms of, man, I fell into this turn from that sin. Jesus, I don't want that. I want you. Forgive me. It's as simple as that. Are you part of communities where that's happening? Where people are challenging you to come and experience the joy of knowing him. Man, trash that sin. This church is tolerating her. They're tolerating her. She's unrepentant. She's been exposed. And they're tolerating her. Now, what does it mean that they're tolerating her? It seems as though they haven't walked the process all the way out. Maybe they took step one. That's it. Maybe just step two. But they haven't walked the process all the way out. They didn't tell it to the church. They weren't taking steps to remove her from the church. They're tolerating her. They're not walking it out all the way. They're still allowing her to have influence in the church. And in not taking further action with this influential woman, they're allowing her to continue to lead people in the church astray. She's dangerous. She's unrepentant. And she's speaking lies. In their neglect to lead boldly and follow through in removing her, they've implicitly communicated to everyone that her teaching isn't really that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe they heard murmurs of maybe a conversation here and there, but nothing yet. Nothing else. Can you imagine? They're not contending with this woman. They're not following through with this process. Can you imagine the confusion that this would have created? Not contending with each other's sin and grace creates confusion. It certainly creates confusion in the church, and it creates confusion for those of us who don't know the gospel. Who don't know God's grace. Oh man, you can be about Jesus and be about that and no one says anything. You see the confusion? You see the confusion in the church? You see the confusion in the world? And here we see the necessity of church discipline. And having those one-on-one conversations. Those little moments over coffee. Those late nights on the back patio where you have to have have a hard talk. We see the necessity of that. Contending with the unrepentant. This is for the sake of the whole church. This is for the sake of the testimony of the gospel in the eyes of the whole city here in Thyatira. And when we walk out the process of church discipline, we communicate to everyone that holiness matters, sin is serious, repentance is necessary, and the gospel is powerful. That's what we communicate. There needs to be clarity here in Thyatira. Teaching, action. Clearly some were being led astray in Thyatira and not dealing with it rightly created a bigger mess. The church has failed in this. Thyatira has failed in this. 
But where the church has failed, Jesus steps in with this letter. Why? Because he loves this church. Where the church failed, Jesus steps in with a letter. Because he loves this church. Because he loves his glory and the fame of his name too much. He loves his church too much. And he hates sin too much to let this continue. The one whose eyes are like a flame of fire sees clearly and writes to the whole church so that they might see clearly too. Jesus does what they are failing to do. Now notice verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'm going to throw her onto a sick bed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. I gave her time to repent. Because she won't, and her true followers are following along with her, won't repent. Jesus issues some prom- promises of warning here. Look at what he says. I'm gonna, I promise to throw her onto a sick bed. A sick bed. Interesting, this false prophetess is promoting and practicing sexual immorality. She's used to spending her time in a bed. Jesus says, I have a different bed for you, Jezebel. I'm going to throw you onto a sick bed. This is a promise of warning of physical illness, sickness, possibly disease, or even death. You won't repent, I'm going to contend with you. Because you're damaging my church and you're damaging the name of Jesus in this city. Jesus says straight up, he's going to strike her children, her followers, dead. This is heavy language here. What do we do with this? He promises to throw any from his church in Thyatira who follow her into great tribulation. Anybody who follows her, I'm going to throw you into great tribulation. Now, I have no idea what that means. But if I read this letter and I was starting to buy into Jezebel's teachings and practices, I would know enough to turn. I don't want any part of that. Great tribulation. Whoa. What did we say last week? Warnings what? Drive us to repentance. They drive us. These are not empty threats. Warnings drive us to repentance. Warnings also awaken us from the deception of our sin. I mean, I kind of was deceived. I thought this was okay. Jesus issues a warning. Okay, whoa, clearly this is not okay. I need to stop this. I need to turn. Imagine not knowing which side to take in Thyatira. A lot of deception going on. A lot of seduction going on, right? Whose side? Imagine not knowing. Jesus' words cleared it up for everybody real quick. Real quick. This is not right. This is wrong. Now, what's the result of Jesus' judgment? What does he want? Does he want to be a tough guy? Does he want to flex his power and just judge? No. There's a heart of grace here. And there's a desire for his glory to be known and for him to be worshipped. Look at verse 23, the end of it. Why does he do this? That all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, this. Jesus warns and promises to do all of this so that we'll know his eyes are wide open. That he is not fooled. That he sees everything. And he is not messing around. He wants to be appropriately feared and appropriately worshipped. That's what Jesus wants. And his warning shaking us. Can we just stop for a moment and all acknowledge that Jesus is the risen, ruling, radiant son. And he's well aware of what's happening in all of our lives and in all of our churches. And he is not playing. He's not messing around. And so for some of you who are here who are trapped in this, you might need this jarring word. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees exactly what's going on in your life. And he's not playing around. And you better take serious this warning. See it as an extension of his grace. He loves you enough to speak harshly to you, to jar you. 
Jesus desires to be appropriately feared and rightfully worshipped, and so he contends. And he tells his church to follow through. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, I do not hold that who do not hold this teaching... Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on any of you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus says to the rest of you, those who haven't strayed from me, those who haven't started following Jezebel, to the rest of you who haven't bought into this teaching or these practices, to you all, I do not lay on you any other burden than the one I've already placed on you. Stop tolerating this false prophetess. Follow through with church discipline. Follow through. That's a burden in and of itself, friends. To have that hard conversation, to walk through that, that's a burden in and of itself. It's hard, he says. I don't lay on any other burden. Stop tolerating her. Follow through. Remove her. Stop tolerating her, Thyatira, and hold fast to what you have already. Me, the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't stray. Hold fast to me. Follow through on removing her. That's what he says to the church. He doesn't lay on them any other burden. She and her followers, her children are unrepentant. She's deceiving and harming people in the church. Love me, love the church enough to not let my powerful gospel and my beautiful name be brought low. Follow through, church. Follow through. Are there some here this weekend who are tolerating sin? Is Jesus' words of this I have against you, you're tolerating? Are there some here this weekend who are tolerating sin? Maybe in your life, a friend's life. Are there some here this weekend that need to follow through on something that they've started? Maybe tolerating sin that they see destroying a brother or sister's life. Is that you? Is there a conversation you need to have? Is there something that you need to follow through with? Maybe you're seeing something that needs to be confronted at a friend, but you're not following through. Maybe you're afraid to do so. This is hard. Jesus calls it a burden. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough to have that conversation. Jesus doesn't lay on you any other burden than to hold fast to his grace and follow through with that hard conversation. Send that text. Shoot that Facebook message. Make that call. Have that conversation. Or maybe you're tolerating sin in your own life. Are you messing around with some sort of besetting and constant sin in your life and you're half-heartedly dealing with it? You're dealing with it in the dark. You're dealing with it in your own power. You're dealing with it in your own strength. And it's just constant cycle that you're struggling with. Maybe you're struggling with it on your own and you're rejecting the blessing of community in your life. Maybe you need to just break out of that cycle. You think you got it, you don't. You think you got it under control, you don't. You're going at it alone. You're tolerating the sin in your life. Maybe you need to reach out to someone. Let them know what's going on. Let me tell you something. The devil would want you to believe No greater lie than this. Don't have that conversation. Don't say it. Don't talk about it. Consequences, fear, shame, and guilt. I'm here to tell you that there is freedom of walking in the light. You you have that conversation. Yeah. You reach out. You tell someone. You show up at CR. You shoot an email to a pastor. You reach out to a friend around here and tell them, this is what I got going on. I've been wrestling with this in the dark for years, and I haven't told anybody. Are you tolerating sin? Are you in an ongoing cycle? And you're just trapped in the darkness and shame and guilt and you're not experiencing the freedom and the life of Christ. What step do you need to take? Jesus is writing a letter to you. 
Don't tolerate your sin. Don't tolerate it. It's time to break outside of that cycle. You don't have it under control. Is Jesus contending with you today, friend? Is he convicting you? Maybe through this letter calling you to repentance? Or maybe through this letter, maybe we can be encouraged to be a people that show love for God and love for each other by lovingly contending with each other. That this will be more of a rhythm and a practice in our relationships, in our small groups, small group leaders, core group leaders. Is there a culture of this that happens? Graceful contending in relationships. Or are you just getting together for a Bible study and pie? Are we getting involved in each other's lives? Are we having the hard conversations? Let's stop talking about it with other people and let's start talking about it with the people who we need to talk about it with. Can we all take notice here that Jesus' eyes are wide open? He's not fooled or playing the fool. We need to deal with this. And at the same time, can we all notice that he loves us enough to come? He loves us enough to come and contend with us. This is Jesus' grace. He contended with our sin in sending Jesus, and he won at the cross, and he continues to do so. Why? Because of a steadfast covenant love in our lives. That's why. That's why he writes hard letters to churches, because he loves them. Now notice the promises here, 26, to the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who keeps my works to the end, to the one who holds tight to me and doesn't stray with Jezebel, to the one who holds tight my grace and doesn't stray with her children. The one who holds on to me, faithful and following me. Two promises. To him, I will give authority over the nations. Second one is this. I'm going to give you the morning star. I'm going to give you authority over the nations, and I'm going to give you the morning star. What's this all about? Here's the promises. Really, this is a promise that we will rule with Christ. That when he comes, we'll be on his side. We're going to rule with him. We're going to be on the winning team at the end. When Jesus comes back to make all things new and establish his righteous rule in this world, his kingship will finally and fully be realized. Jesus says that those who are his, on that day you will rule with me. You're going to rule nations. You're going to rule with me. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be the war to end all wars. Game over. I want to be on the winning side. As hard as it is in this life. Hold tight to Christ. Hold fast to him. Will rule with him. For a letter where Jesus pitted himself against Jezebel, it's comforting to know that those who repent and hold on to the gospel are going to be on Jesus' side in the end. Jesus versus Jezebel, whose side are you going to be on? Cling to me. Cling to me. Following her ends you in death. Following me ends you in life and ruling and reigning as co heirs. I'm better. I'm better. Jesus says, I'm better. I'm better than Jezebel. I'm better than following after your sexual, sinful, selfish impulses. Those, those, those gratifications are instant. I'm talking to you about an eternal joy. You'll rule with me. You know, part of Jesus' coming back is the removal of impurity on this earth. Jesus is going to remove all the effects of sin in this world. 
And he's going to finally and fully defeat Satan, sin, and death. Our bodies will be like his body, glorified and made new. That's Jesus' future work. Interesting that part of Jesus' present work in the world is to use his church to contend with our sin and to try to remove the impurity in our lives right now. You see that? I'm coming back one day and I'm going to remove all the impurity off of the earth. Guess what I'm doing right now? Through church discipline, through friends who love you, through contending, through rebuking, through admonishing. I want to remove that now. I want to start this process with you, church. The church really is a small glimpse of the future, right? It's a small little glimpse. The kingdom here, now. What will be perfectly then, we see now in the church. A community where Jesus is worshipped and sin is being dealt with. We're going to see that fully at his return, but we see it now in our community, in our church, in this place. Ruling and reigning with Jesus in the future depends on our faithfulness and clinging to him and his gospel and his grace in the present. Friends, you should not expect that these promises will be true for you if you're walking in unrepentance. People who are genuinely in Christ repent. Jesus says to those who overcome, to those who cling tight to me, you'll rule with me. Jesus wants us to all have that confidence. Even Jezebel even contended with her. He's not a respecter of persons. His grace is to all. Any who want to repent, any who want to believe, come on and be with me. Come on and be with me on my side. Anybody here tonight need to do that? Second one, I'm going to give him the morning star. I'm going to give to you the morning star. The morning star is a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star, Revelation 22, 16. This is basically the same promise as the previous one. Jesus is giving them the promise of being identified with him at his return. Right now, the church is like a little light post in the world, shining a little light of the gospel in the midst of the darkness of this world, right? Worship of Jesus, contending with sin, loving one another, loving neighbor, little light shining, in the world, all churches around the world are lights shining in the world. Jesus' church shines right now. But one day the morning star is going to light up this whole world upon his return. One day it's not going to be just little lights. The whole world's going to be lit up when this morning star rises and comes. You know what Jesus says? I'm going to give you that. You're going to own that. Meaning this, that's my day. I can't wait for that day. I'm going to own that. I look forward to that. Yes. Come, morning star, right? I'm going to give that to you. It's ours. We're going to rejoice in that day. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna glorify him in that day. We're going to be changed in that day. It's our day. I'm going to give you the morning star. And on that day, we won't have to worry about the painful and difficult process of church discipline anymore. Because there'll be no sin. No more sin. No more sin in my life to contend with. No more sin in others' lives to contend with. It's all going to be removed. It's all going to be removed. When he comes, when the morning star rises, and the whole earth is filled with his glory, and all the effects of sin are removed from the earth, that's my day. I can't wait for that day. But until then... May what is going to be true on that day be true and be seen in our church these days. Let's pray. God.
Thank you for this letter. Clearly, God, you're, you're pushing us. You're driving us. You're also wooing us to yourself. We're going to rule and reign with you. You're going to give us the morning star. That's our day. We're going to rejoice on that day. We're not going to be fearful on that day. You're pushing us to be a people that love each other enough to contend, to follow through, even with the hard things. Because you contended with our sin at the cross. It gives us strength to contend with each other. And the repents even of our own sin. May we be a community and a church that loves each other like you've loved us. May we be a part of this. God, for those of us who needed this harsh warning, this word here today, those of us who are tolerating sin, those of us who, who might be following after people like Jezebel maybe, God, may these warnings just shock us, scare us even. And awaken us from the deception of what we're doing. And that we'll come to see that you're better and that we'll turn and we'll have joy and worship of you. Help us to all be a part of that process in our lives. And I pray for our community that we would grow in more involvement in community. And a depth of community and health of community, God. That we might help each other see and savor Christ till he comes back. In Jesus' name.